gospel song. Uh, if you're here for the first time today, you're visiting this morning, we want to welcome you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And I would ask if you get a moment, if you would take the visitor card, it should be in front of you in the pew. In one of the pockets, there's a QR code. And you can take that, you can scan it with your uh, smartphone, that'll take you to a little, I guess, survey, that just a couple of questions there that you can tell us a little bit about yourself. But more importantly, we can also then get in contact with you, especially if you have questions about our ministry. We would love to talk to you and get the opportunity to know you a little bit better. And you can also visit our website, as was already mentioned, gracenc.org. You can get some more information there as well. But we would love just to have the opportunity to meet you and get to know you a little bit. Um, Margaret mentioned to me um, before, just a few moments ago, that uh, Pastor Wes mentioned my wife's video that is available on Facebook and YouTube, so if that is something you would like to take a look at, uh, let me encourage you to find that, and uh, you may find some encouragement from that. I'm biased, but she did a pretty good job, I would say, and so let me encourage you to take a look at that. This morning, I want to ask you a couple of questions just for you to, to think about, and let me start it with this one. What is your favorite day of the week? Now, I like the first service better, so I let them answer out loud. I'm kidding. There was fewer people, so I, we had a little brief discussion about that. And overwhelmingly, immediately, I gave them an opportunity to respond, and I heard, Friday! Then a very spiritual person said, well, I love every day that I'm awake and alive. That's the best answer. Agreed. But if we pick one of the seven days, what is your favorite day of the week? I'll tell you mine. I love Mondays. I love, sincerity, I love them. I can't wait for every Monday. Well, pastors are off Mondays. Ah, not this one. I look forward to Monday. You know why? New opportunities to do great things for God. Now, in our little cycle of work, the way we do employment here in this country and in many others, the weekend, Saturday, Sunday, is kind of set aside. Now, that's changing in our culture. Many, many people work six, seven days a week. When I was in the healthcare industry, I, you know, you worked whatever day you were told. So I get that. But on a typical work week, a typical work week begins on Monday. And how do you view Monday? I view it as an opportunity to invest my life into the vocation that God has given to me. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you enjoy work? Now, some of you just got nauseous at the sound of that horrible four-letter word. But the reality is, God has created you and me to work. In fact, this is found throughout the pages of Scripture. We find this all over the place, and we are studying right now through the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been in chapter 9. We're going to be in chapter 9 again today. We're going to be looking at verses 10, 11, um, and, and 12. And as we look at these three verses, we're going to see that work is a very important part of what God has called us to do. Now, before we look at Ecclesiastes 9 and verses 9, or excuse me, 10, 11, and 12, we'll get to those in a few moments, but I want to read to you another verse of Scripture that 
Solomon gives to us in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, verse 18, when he said, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find, listen to this, enjoyment, enjoyment in your toil, in your work, in your labor, with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given to him, for this is his lot. Now, it's very curious to me that in Ecclesiastes 9, Solomon had just talked to us in verse 9 about putting energy into our marriages. And we talked last week about the importance of investing time and energy into our marriages and being a spouse, as Solomon writing as a man, who says, love your wife, love her volitionally, love her unconditionally, love your wife, enjoy her. In fact, that's what he begins verse 9 with, is the word enjoy. Enjoy what? Enjoy your marriage. Now, I would take the first word of verse 9, enjoy, and I would run that through the following context. After he talks about marriage, he moves into verse uh, 10 when he says this. He says, whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might. He goes on and he says, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now, each one of these verses, understanding the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is writing much of his life, much of his observations of life were made with, with relatively complete disregard for God. So, and we'll get to another verse in Ecclesiastes in a moment. So when he says this statement that whatever we do, whatever hands find to do, including your marriage, by the way, do it with all of your might. Don't do it half-heartedly. Don't do it with partial energy. Invest in it. Work, labor at your marriage. But now he comes on and he says, not only that, whatever your hands do, and we're going to apply it specifically this morning to your vocation, Whatever you do vocationally, you are to do it with all of your might because you are going to Sheol where there is no thinking and no opportunity to work. He, sometimes when you see the word Sheol, people assume he's talking about hell. Okay, I, I believe hell is a real place. I do believe that that is a true etern, part of eternity for those who reject Christ. Yes, I believe that. But he's not talking about hell in this word. He's talking about the grave. That each and every one of us are going to die. You're going to go into a grave. And in this grave, there is going to be no thought, no knowledge, no wisdom. He is not rejecting the idea of eternity. He is speaking from a purely human existence. Verse 11, he says, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happens to them all. Again, he's not denying God's sovereignty. He's not saying this is just a big, you know, uh, a string of luck and chance. This world isn't just simply chance. It's under God's sovereignty. He's not denying that. But in verse 12, he says, for a man does not know his time. From a human perspective, we don't know what tomorrow brings. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time and when it suddenly falls upon them. 
So we think about Solomon's instruction here, enjoy your marriage and also enjoy your home. It's interesting, by the way, that this connection is so closely together because another application before we get into the text that you think about with marriage and work is the inevitable principle of what has been called the greener grass syndrome. And you see this in marriage, right? You hear this all the time. Well, if I was married to this person, man, I would have a wonderful marriage. If I had a different spouse, I would have a wonderful, I mean, my life would be so wonderful with this person, the person that I have no bills with, no children with, no responsibility with, no demands of life with, life would be so wonderful. Ah, be careful. But we do the same thing with employment. I was in healthcare, as you know this, I say this all the time, but just sometimes it applies and more often than not. Being in two different kind of quote-unquote careers, I think, is interesting that when I was in the healthcare world, I lived with this illusion when I first got out of college, the first hospital I worked in, guess what? It was hard to work there. So I did the right thing. I got a new job at a new hospital, and guess what? It was hard to work there, too. So, of course, third time's a charm. I got a job at a third, third hospital, and uh, who knew? It was hard there too. Why? Because there's a bunch of sinners there. And work is hard. Guess what? Duh! It's work. It's supposed to be hard. Hello? So then I got real spiritual and went into ministry and got out into a church and realized, man, this is, oh no. <laughs> what just happened? Now, yeah, you're around saved sinners now, but guess what? <laughs> They're still sinners. And it was complicated and hard. So I went to another ministry, and it was complicated and hard. Came here, it's complicated and hard. The greener grass syndrome is setting you up for tremendous disappointment in your life. And so we have to come at this context. We talked about marriage last week. This morning, we want to talk about how do we do our jobs well? How do we minister vocationally for the cause of Christ? And by that, I don't mean everybody in full-time ministry. I'm talking about whatever vocation that God has placed you and called you to. There is a theology of work that we find in Scripture and Solomon here talking in Ecclesiastes. Whatever you do, you do it well. And you do it with your, all of your might, with everything that you have. Now, before we pull these three verses apart and then make some principles from these three verses, I want to first of all start with giving you five preliminary comments about work. And these are really just from a scriptural, big picture theological perspective about work. First of all, number one, work is not a curse or a result of the fall. Did you know that? Yes, the curse of the world that happened after the fall made work more complicated. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, talks about that. Life became more difficult. It became more problematic. However, please do not, in your sanctified imagination, get this picture that Adam and Eve were somewhere sitting by the riverside in a hammock drinking lemonade all day long and just watching the sun go across the sky. They were created to work. 
to labor, to be creative, to be productive. You may not believe that. Well, listen to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. This is prior to the fall of mankind. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's work. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam and Eve were not on this perpetual vacation. Yes, it was perfect. Creation was perfect. There was no sin in this world. But like God, who is creative, like God, who is productive, Adam and Eve, being created in the image of God, were called to also be productive and creative. So please don't view work as part of the curse. It's not. It's what God created you to do, to be productive, to be creative. Secondly, when we talk about the theology of work, we have to remember that God is the source of your ability and opportunity to make a living. In other words, it doesn't matter how skilled or clever you are, or let me say it this way, no matter how skilled and clever you think you are, because it is God who gives you the opportunity to work. It is God who gives you the health. It is God who gives you the ability. It is God who gives you the opportunity to minister in your particular vocation. Now, all of us certainly have room to improve, and we can develop our skills, certainly, but we have to remember Deuteronomy 8, verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth. You have not made one penny apart from God's enabling power in your life, not one. Don't take credit for what you have done. You've done nothing. You have simply used your gifts and abilities that your creator God gave you to invest in humanity and to invest in labor for Christ. That's all you've done is you've been obedient to what God has called you to do. Now, for me, my, my time in, in ministry, I, this is just me. This is my, this is sort of opinion, I guess. I've never applied for a ministry job. I've never, ooh, that church is looking for a pastor. Do, 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 let me send in my resume. I've never done that before. It's God's plan to create the opportunity. It's us submitting ourselves to God's direction, to God's, I always joke about this, I love cold weather and mountains, and where did God put me? At the beach and where it's hot. Twice, I was in Florida and, and North Carolina. Like, anyway, enough about that. Mountains are great, cold weather's good. I like this kind of weather, this is my kind of weather. So we have to remember that God is the source of our ability to make money. Number three, God expects you to work hard. As believers in Christ, you are to be diligent. We'll talk about that in a moment. You are to be faithful. We all spend many hours of week, a week, each and every week, in our places of employment. I spend more time with my coworkers than my family, and you probably do too. We'll talk about the whole misnomer of life balance. We'll talk about that briefly this morning. That's, yeah, good luck with that. We are created, according to Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. For a Christian to be lazy, slothful, and unproductive at work is a shame. It's an outright shame. 
I worked, I worked several summers. I was a science major when I was, when I was in college. And I worked several, there were three different summers um, for the state of Delaware in their water resource department. And state employees have a little bit of a stigma, I guess, at least in Delaware they did, that they didn't work very hard. Well, I did. I mean, I took my job very seriously, but I worked with plenty of people that spent far more time and energy getting out of work than just doing their job. And when you are slothful at work, and you have your name Christian beside yourself, that should never be. Believers are called to work and to work hard. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Proverbs 22, 29 says, Do you see a man skillful at his work? He will stand before kings. There's this blessing that comes with laboring and working. Number four, this is an important one to remember, work is for God's glory. Our job is not to build a name or an empire for ourselves. That is not the goal. The goal isn't to bring glory to myself or to bring glory to you or to build an empire so that everybody thinks you're great and wonderful. The idea is to show others, our co-workers, the wonders of our Creator. And to draw glory to him. When your boss sits down and gives you an evaluation and they give you all A's, what an excellent employee, what a great employee. Wow, 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 wow. You don't do that for you. You do it. So when people see that you are a believer in Christ, they see God's glory, not yours. Never yours. It's not about you or me. Number, number five, and this is one that some of us need to remember more than others maybe, is that work is not a God. Good morning, and welcome to Grace Baptist Church. That God has created between work and rest. Some of us have trouble with the whole rest thing. I do. But we have to understand that work is not just a place to make money or to receive recognition or status. It's not something to be worshipped. It's not something that we find our ultimate meaning in. It is not something that is our ultimate um, def defining matter in our life. We thank God for the gifts and opportunities that God has provided. But as Colossians 3 says, whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So with those five sort of guiding principles on, on work, let's dive in to some of the instruction that we can glean from Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10. Let me read that again. He says, whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might. First principle I would suggest that we find in these three verses is, as we've already mentioned this, be a hard worker. Yes, you are to, going back to verse 9, enjoy the labor that God has given to you. But also be a worker who is investing their life and investing their energy and giftedness to do their job well. Now, we want to put a little bit of, I think, clarification on this idea of whatever your hand finds to do. We need to make sure that we understand that there are practices and vocations that as a believer in Christ, we should have no part of. And there are limitations on what we can do. For instance, an egregious one, if that is an illegal activity, you know, well, hey, I'm breaking the law, but I'm doing it with my whole heart. No, 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 no. 
These are things within the boundaries of Scripture. We don't out, go outside of Scripture. That's not what he's saying. We'll get to this later. We get to the um, conversation about finding God's will in my life. Was it like hidden somewhere? Oh, where did God do with the will? God, really? That's how God wants you to live? I think we've made that conversation far more complicated than what it actually is, but we'll get to that later. But when we think about this picture of whatever I do, whatever God has equipped you to do, whatever God has put before you, whatever you are able to do, your marriage, your vocation, whatever it may be, you do it with your whole heart. Now, here's, here's some interesting observations that Solomon makes. Because we know that much of his life, he tried in his own strength to live life apart from God. He tried, we've talked about this already, I mean, he tried multiple ways to find meaning in this life, and he tried to do it apart from recognizing God as his creator, God as the ultimate meaning of his life, God as the one to whom he should be giving all glory and honor. Solomon tried that, and he came to the same conclusion again and again and again. It was all vanity. Now, listen to what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17, what he found when he tried to work and labor apart from God being a part of this picture. He said this, he said, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless and chasing after the wind. I mean, if I take God out of the picture... And I'm not motivated ultimately by serving God and bringing glory to his name. And all I see is 30, 40, 50 years of work. What a drudgery. I just hated my life. Well, you know, 10 more years, I get to retire. I get to sit by the beach with a little, you know, glass of lemonade and just watch the waves go by. Who wants to do that? Where's that in Scripture? God says, you are to be productive, creative, serving, working, laboring. Until when? Until you're dead. Yay. Now, that doesn't mean we don't retool and our life changes as we get older. Of course. But we have to understand that when we look down the monotony of work, the hectic schedules, the conflict, the long hours, the problems, the ever-present demands of technology and the changes of processes and all those things, it's a very daunting task. I remember my very first job in life was when I was 14 years old. And my first job was delivering furniture. (laughs) <laughs> wow. Rode, all, rode, rode around all day in a truck. I worked in the summertime and weekends. And rode around in this truck with no air conditioning. And I'm four, a 14-year-old kid. I, I know nothing about the world. And I'm riding around. But I learned this about furniture delivery business. Is people buy the biggest pieces of furniture known to humanity. And they want them jammed in the smallest part of their house, usually up at least one, more often than not, two staircases. I lost fingernails. I lost skin. I almost lost teeth. I mean, it was horrible. But I remember my dad who said this. If you 
are capable of getting out of bed, work hard. That's what my dad said. A man with no formal education, none, grew up in an orphanage. A man who marries my mother, who at the time had two daughters because she had been married before. Her first husband died. She married my father, who then they had two children. And my dad had been in the Air Force. He had served in that. But now he has four kids, two of which are not his biologically. Actually, the one is adopted. Long story. That's a really long story as I think through the details of that. I'll spare you all that. But here's what my dad said. I wasn't born yet, so I have no memory of this, but I've heard this story many times from many different people. My dad took an application into a place called General Foods at the time, and he filled out an application, and the man said to him, we're not hiring right now. He said, well, what do you want to do? My dad said, I don't care. I will do whatever I have to do to provide for my family. I don't care if that's sweeping floors, stocking shelves. I don't care what I do. I'm here to work. Well, I got this man's attention. He had my dad fill out an application. He got hired. My dad worked his way up through the ranks. No education, no college, none of that. I think he went through 10th grade maybe in high school. He became a developer for uh, General Foods, developed foods for them, along with people with degrees and all that, and food science and all of that. And he helped develop something you probably have heard of, at least different flavors of this, of stovetop stuffing. My dad was on the development team to do that. He had plaques, how he helped develop this, this flavor or whatever. My dad knew this. You work hard. There's no place in God's economy for a believer to be a slacker. It doesn't exist. Do your job and do it well. When we think about it from, here, here's what I would suggest to you, and, and rather boldly, is if you are saying things like, Solomon, I hate my life, I hate my job. It might be your theology of work is askew. And it might very well be that the reason you're miserable in what you're doing is not so much because the job is monotonous and difficult and hard. Every job is. It might be that you have just kind of left God out of the equation. That's what Solomon did. And yet now when he comes to this principle, when he says that you are to work hard, and by the way, I would argue that the greatest way that we show love to our neighbors as believers is by doing our jobs and doing our jobs well and doing them to the best of our ability. So this first principle we find is that we have been called by God to be known as believers who are hard workers, who are dedicated to serving others. Number two, in verse 11, we want to draw this principle from verse 11 when he says, and again, I saw that the I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor to the battle, or to the strong, uh, not bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happens to them all. There is a principle here that not only are we to be hard workers, but we have to also be disciplined or more particularly diligent workers. Because there are plenty of fast racers, runners who don't win the race. There's plenty of people who are strong and who are wise and who are intelligent, who have knowledge, but they don't quote unquote succeed. I love this quote. I don't know if this originated with Tim Tebow or not, but he's the one that I heard say this. Tim Tebow said it this way. He said, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. 
You can be the most talented person in the world. That's great. Good for you. But if you're not diligent, you're not hardworking, then you are not going to achieve what God has called you to do, what God has called you to be. It's been well documented from this pulpit that when I was in high school, uh, schoolwork was really not my thing. However, I learned diligence in studying, in working. When everyone else was out, I went to a public university, when they were out drinking and they were out at the bar and they were out doing whatever, I was in my room doing schoolwork. I was up at 3.15, 3.30 in the morning every day, studying for the day, coming home from class. I wasn't the smartest guy in the room, still far from that, but I was diligent, coming home from class, copying my notes again and again and again. I would copy them literally until when I went to take a test, I could close my eyes and I could see the answer on the page that I had written 50 times. I felt like I was cheating almost. Oh, it's right. Oh, there it is right there. It's diligence, hard work. Now, by the way, I want you to keep your finger there and go to Proverbs chapter six for a moment. I want you to see a picture of what this diligence looks like. And so often in what we call wisdom literature, just even out, even extra biblical wisdom literature, very often the writers would go to nature and they would find illustrations in the world to illustrate their point. And God, under inspiration, uses nature in this picture of diligence that we see in Ecclesiastes. It's more specifically seen and recognized in Proverbs chapter 6 and verses 6 through 11. Watch these verses. It says, go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest? And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Ants here in this picture are a example for us to see what diligence looks like. They are a model of diligence, a model of what we can glean from. And let me just share with you some observations from these verses. First of all, ants are models of persistence. Notice, he says, consider their ways. They are without a chief, without an officer. They are persistent. They also take initiative. They don't need to be managed. They are just doing what they are supposed to do. They are motivated. Now, by the way, on the issue of motivation, you can be the most gifted person in the world. If you don't have motivation, you're, you're out of luck. It has to be this internal motivation in order to serve and to do what God has called me to do. Notice also answer models of productivity. They're models of proactivity. They see the summer months coming to an end and they prepare and they are bringing in the food that they are going to need for the winter. They are models of dependability. They are also models of excellence. And then in verses 9 through 11, we have the ant that is pictured as this worker, this person that is diligent, this animal, if you will, this creation that is 
diligent. And notice in verses 10 and 11, and even in verse 6, the ant is set apart from a person who is a slothful person, a lazy person, a person who is not doing what they are supposed to do. Now, we have to understand, as I mentioned before, that we have this misnomer in our thinking that there is this perfect life balance, this elusive life balance. Well, you know, I need to spend equal time and equal, equal time in every category of my life. Yeah, good luck with that. that that's chasing, you're going to chase the wind on that one. I have to put effectual time in each area of my life. That's true. But this idea of perfect work-life balance is an impossibility. However, there is a rhythm to work and rest. Some of us lean toward the workaholic side where we want to work all the time, and then there are others that lean toward the slothful side, the place where they just want to sleep and rest and do very little with themselves. Laziness, according to Scripture, this lack of diligence leads to poverty, it leads to ruin. In God's mind, based on the book of Proverbs, the idea of a believer being lazy is unacceptable. Unacceptable. That's not how a believer lives their lives. I came across this quote, and I I was trying to remember if I've used this quote in a sermon before, I don't remember if I've used this in a sermon, and if I don't remember, you probably don't remember, so hey, we're all in this together. Martin Luther said this, the great reformer, and he said this in October of 1516, and this is one of those statements that whenever I feel like, you know, I'm a pretty productive person, this, just listen to what he said. 1516, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. He said, and I'm quoting here, he said, I could use two secretaries. I do nothing during the day but write letters. I do nothing during the day but write letters. I am a conventional preacher, reader at meals, parochial preacher, director of studies, overseer of 11 monasteries, superintendent of the fish pond at Litzkow, somebody's got to do it, referee of the squabble at Torgau, lecturer of Paul, collector of material for a commentary on the Psalms. And then, as I said, I'm overwhelmed with letters. I rarely have time for the canonical hours and for saying mass, not to mention my own temptations with the world, the flesh, and the devil. You see how lazy I am? Really? Really? That's lazy? I'd say that's rather productive. That's rather the way that we all should be trying to pursue this idea of being faithful, persistent, productive, creative people that are serving God and serving God in whatever vocation God has called us to. On this issue of being a sluggard, which Martin Luther clearly was not that, But I want you to listen, this is just from the book of Proverbs, of what God's Word says about those that are described as sluggards. Now, it doesn't mean we don't maybe have a lazy day from time to time, but listen to the words of Proverbs, and I'll just mention a handful of these, more than a handful, several. Proverbs 12, 27, whoever is slothful will not roast his gain. But the diligent man will get precious wealth. 
Proverbs 13, 4, the soul of the slugger craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Verse 15 of chapter 19, slothfulness cast into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Verse 24, the slugger, I love verse 24. This is one of the most picturesque verses in Scripture. The image that comes to my mind every time I read this verse is, is it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. Proverbs 19, 24, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. The picture is a man at his meal and he just puts his hand and he grabs a handful of food and he is just so tired and so slothful he can't even bring it to his mouth. It's slothful. It's right there for your taking and you can't even do it. Proverbs 20, verse 4, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Proverbs 20, verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Proverbs 21, 25, the desire of the slugger kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Proverbs 28, 19, whoever works with his hands will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Now, it's not to say that there are not people that are suffering through poverty that are working hard. I'm not suggesting that, neither is Scripture. But the picture here is a person should not be known as a sluggard, a slothful person. Especially in the name of Christ, we are called to be diligent. I love this quote. It comes from Darren Hardy's book, The Compound Effect. He said, the biggest difference between successful people and unsuccessful people is that successful people are willing to do what unsuccessful people are not. In other words, by the way, the word successful there, I'm defining as using my life to bring glory to God. That's success to me. I don't know how you define it, whatever you define it. To me, biblically speaking, success is when I'm investing my life into God's calling for his glory, regardless of how much money I make, regardless of position. That's irrelevant to me. It is about using my life faithfully to bring glory to God. That's success. Now, we have to also understand that when we talk about this idea of being diligent, there's another misnomer that we often hear. You have to, well, I just got to manage my time better. You know, you actually can't manage time. How many of you can make the clock go back four hours? How many of you can go back and repeat a day? How many of you can make time stand still and accomplish what you are? Time management's the wrong term. You know what you have to manage? You. If you don't believe me, just listen to Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, that is Holy Spirit-empowered self-control. We don't want to fall into the ditch of believing that I'm great, wonderful, magnificent person who just controls myself. And No, 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 no. This is a spiritual Spirit-empowered ability to control myself and not allow time-stealers to come into my life and rob me of the opportunity to be productive for the glory of God. So we have to be known as diligent workers, 
dedicated to serving others and doing so for the glory of God. And then finally, and briefly back in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 12, and there's a principle here that I want you to to see when he says, for man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. What Solomon here is, is hinting at and getting at is a very real reality that we know from a human perspective is that disasters come at unexpected times. Life is unpredictable. Even to the previous verse, the most gifted, the most talented, the fastest, the most intelligent, the most wise person that cannot prevent disaster or unexpected events coming into our lives, including our own death. In fact, John Piper, and and by the way, the principle that I would draw from this is very simply this. We need to be courageous workers, not giving in to fear. John Piper said it this way. He said, risk is woven into the fabric of our finite lives. We cannot avoid risk, even if we want to. Ignorance and uncertainty about tomorrow is our native air. We live with this sense of uncertainty But we can never allow uncertainty to derail us or to paralyze us or to keep us from doing what God has called us to do. A a question that I heard a long time ago now, and I think about it all the time, and I wrestle with it all the time. The question is very simply this. What would you do in your life if you were not afraid? What would you do in your life if you were not afraid to fail? What would you do in your life if you were not afraid to be embarrassed? What would you do in life if you were not afraid that you were inadequate? What would you do? I know my answer to that question. I don't know if you know yours, and I'm still working toward getting rid of that fear that would keep me from doing what maybe God would ultimately have me to do. But it's a struggle for all of us. This fear of the uncertainty, this fear of what tomorrow may bring. We're going to talk later in our study of Ecclesiastes about God's will. But before we leave this text about work, about how we work, that we are hard workers, we are diligent workers, we are courageous workers, I want you to think about this very principle. Because again, here there's a lot, just trying to find God's will for my life. God's will, especially in a vocational sense, is where passion, giftedness, and opportunity collide. In other words, in order for me to have a fulfilling, exciting, enjoyable, vocational opportunity, I have to have three things be present. Number one, I have to have passion for it. I'm passionate about a lot of things. So passion in and of itself is not the end all in my time in healthcare. I mean, hey, I was making a lot of money. So Work my way up the corporate ladder. 27 years old, moving up. So, if there's no passion to do that, I'm just punching boxes, taking care of patients. Another another trauma. Another sick person. You lose your passion 
That's miserable. That's miserable. I love what I do. I love it. Passion hasn't waned in years. There has to also be giftedness. Again, I have passion about a lot of things, but it doesn't mean that I'm gifted at all of them. If I have passion, but I don't have giftedness, you're probably going to fail. But I also have to have some level of opportunity. There's got to be giftedness. There's got to be passion. There's got to be opportunity in order for me to follow the path that I believe God is calling me to do. Now, let's, let's, be, let's be honest with ourselves, though. It's, it's very easy to look at those three and say, well, clearly I'm in the wrong voca- vocation. Because, I mean, my job, pastor, you just don't understand. My job is just awful. Why is it awful? Is, is it awful because it's hard? Or is it awful because you've become like Solomon and you're doing it for your own glory? Or for your own purposes? Is it any wonder you're like Solomon who says, man, I hate my life? What? What a disregard for God's grace and wonder and mercy in our lives. What a a statement of rejecting God's provision. It, It might be, it might be, it might be that you're not in the place vocationally where God has you because passion, giftedness, or opportunity are not there. But it might also be that your theology of work has left your soul dry because you have lost perspective that your vocation is ultimately for the glory of God. Whatever that vocation is, it doesn't matter what that is, as long as it's not illegal, unethical, or unbiblical. Do it for the glory of God. So I leave you with these thoughts. Enjoying life includes enjoying your vocational calling Be a diligent worker. Do your job well. Find God's will, or more particularly, discern God's will. Where patient, passion, giftedness, and opportunity are found. That's God's will for you. God designed you for those passions. God designed you with that giftedness. God provides you with those opportunities. And then graciously accept God's vocational provision. And bring glory to the name of God by being an excellent worker for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to study very briefly this very big, complex discussion of our theology of work. And yet, Lord, it is, your word is filled with principles that we can learn about how we are to labor, whether it be in our marriage, whether it be in our vocations, whatever it may be, of what should define us as believers and how we live, how we work, how we invest our time and energy into your kingdom. Lord, I pray that as we think about these principles, that we would take them to heart and and ask hard questions about ourselves or what we we may need to change, where our thinking may need to be corrected. 
And Lord, we thank you for the opportunities that you do give us to earn a living, to provide for our families, and do the things you have gifted us to do. And Lord, we, we thank you for that. And Lord, we pray that as we are dismissed now, we pray that you would uh, go before us, give us safety as we travel home, and as we do begin a new work day, new work week tomorrow, that we would do so with a sense of excitement and energy over the opportunity to serve you in our vocation. Dismiss us now with your blessing, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Have a good day.